Yeah, it was very picturesque driving across the walls this morning, and happily the uh, main roads were uh, well salted and not too tricky. Anyway, yeah. Some time ago now, a young man, don't know his name, but just for the sake of it, we'll call him Re Reuben, he began to think about the kind of girl that he would like to uh, uh, marry. Eventually, he, he, he met this uh, young woman, and she seemed to be the answer to his dreams. We don't know her name either, but let's call her Ruth for the sake of it. And Reuben began to make overtures towards uh, Ruth, and uh, she responded positively. And as their relation developed, they fell in love. And then uh, came the time when uh, Reuben went down on his knee and asked Ruth to be his uh, uh, wife. Now, their families had watched this relationship uh, develop, and they were very happy and thrilled at the prospect of marriage. The planning began in earnest. The date was set. The minister was contacted. Uh, they began to talk about the uh, uh, decorations, the drinks, the food, how many people they would uh, cater for. In Reuben and Ruth's culture, it wasn't the father of the bride who took care of the wedding. It was the groom himself. It was his responsibility to make sure that the wedding was well planned, that the wedding would be well provided for. And uh, in this culture also, it's a little bit like when I, I was in Africa, that we would get invited to a wedding, and the wedding might go on for a whole week, the celebrations and so on. And this was the same in this culture. So it was vitally important to make sure that there was sufficient hospitality for all the visitors who would come and go during this period. And if there wasn't enough, it would not only be a disaster, but it would bring great shame on the groom and his family. Well, the invitations were sent out to the parents, the grandparents, the relatives, the colleagues and friends. And then Reuben, but no, it might have been Ruth, suggested, what about inviting Jesus himself? We know that Aunt Mary is coming, but do you think that Jesus would be interested in joining us too? Let's send him a formal invitation. So they did. And Jesus came. And when Jesus attends, you never know what will happen. But this wedding recorded here in John chapter 2, we find here that Jesus used this occasion to turn water into wine. And as the Apostle John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this wedding that took place in Cana in Galilee, I want to first of all, in verses 1 to 5, to focus on the man, the Lord Jesus. And then we want to look at the miracle of turning water into wine in verses 6 through 10. And then, thirdly, the meaning of this miracle in verse 11. This is the first of his signs. So first of all, we want to look at the man as John reveals him to us. It says there, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. You remember, as you've studied John chapter 1, John records incidents from four consecutive days in Jesus' life at the commencement of his ministry. And so he speaks there in verses 19 to 28, the first uh, day. That was the day when Jesus answered the Pharisees, their questions as to who he was. And then in verse 29, he talks about the next day, the, the, the second day, when John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then he speaks in verse 35 of the third day, the next day, where Jesus takes two of John's disciples. John identifies him and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two of his disciples immediately follow Jesus. And then, in verse 33, he speaks about, again, the next day, the fourth day, where Philip and Nathaniel also meet and join the Lord Jesus. So when, here in John chapter uh, 2 and verse 1, he introduces the day of the wedding is taking place on the third day, he's talking about following on from the fourth uh, day, the seventh day. And he was Jesus with five of the disciples. The events of this first three days had all taken place in Judea, but the wedding was to take place in Cana of Galilee. That was some 80 miles away. So we read in chapter 1 and verse 43, the next day Jesus decides to go to Galilee. So we know that three days later and about 80 miles further on, Jesus arrived with his five disciples and was reunited with his mother, who was already there. It's interesting that you note that there's no mention of Joseph, the father, during the period of Jesus' ministry. And we can assume from that that Joseph had died. It's interesting that when Jesus was dying on the cross that he said to John, you know, here's my mother, and, and, and take care of her. There's no uh, mention. So we, we believe there that Joseph was no longer alive. Now clearly, this was an occasion of, of great importance to Jesus. To walk 80 miles, I don't know where any of you have walked that kind of distance in, in three days. But it shows great desire, it shows commitment, it shows serious physical exertion to be in attendance at this social gathering. And his presence there shows Jesus as one who enters into the normal situations of life, a readiness to get alongside people and share in their joys as well as their uh, sorrows. His presence here at this wedding also affirms and endorses marriage between man and a woman as God's ordained pattern for society. For the mutual comfort and blessing of those who choose to marry, and for the propagation of children who are born into loving homes where husband and wife live in harmony and nurture their children. And we can learn from this, you know, it's always a, a good idea to invite Jesus to your wedding. That as you build a home, having Jesus as the foundation of your union, you have the surest uh, 
foundation for surviving the uh, troubles, the trials, the difficulties, the inevitable storms of life. As I look back on my life now, I've been married 53 years, and uh, we were not Christians when we were uh, first married, but within the first year we both came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I cannot imagine you know, our relationship surviving without Christ being at the heart of our marriage. Of course, we can also think of that final marriage supper of the Lamb revealed to us in Revelation 19, uh, verses 6 and 9. Christ begins His ministry on earth at this wedding, but He will finish it, as far as the church is concerned, with a wedding, when at the marriage supper of the Lamb, His bride is presented to Him faultless before His throne. And forever we will live in that perfect eternal union as those who've trusted Him, He our Savior. Christ's readiness to meet with people in their homes was often criticized by the Jewish religious leaders. You remember in Luke chapter 15, uh, Luke records there the how the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But this was the whole purpose that Jesus had come into the world. He, he came to seek and to save uh, sinners. And his example is there for us that we too need to be in this business of reaching out to men and women to bring them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He requires prayerful, intentional befriending of the unsaved in order to be able to speak of Jesus and those we are addressing know that we genuinely care for them. I wonder, amongst your circle of friends, are there those who are unsaved and you're seeking to establish a relationship with them so that you can share the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Some believers, unfortunately, uh, have understood the verse, you know, come out from among them and, and separate yourselves and touch not the unclean thing as a call to separate ourselves from the world and have as little involvement with the world as possible. There are Christian organizations that have grown up with this certainly in the forefront of their thinking and still exists today. But as Warren Wiersbe puts it, biblical separation is not isolation, but contact without contamination. Jesus could never be accused of being an isolationist. He was constantly in contact with sinners every day, but without contamination and never without compassion. Living a godly life does not necessitate a separating from society. Now, returning to our text here in verse 3, it said, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The occasion of the wine running out was very concerning uh, to Mary. 
It was not just an embarrassment to not be able to provide for all the guests there, but it was a thing of great shame. And the family would be forever known as the ones who didn't provide uh, for the wedding. So, of necessity, Mary was extremely concerned. Now, normally, at such a wedding gathering, those who were the guests would also contribute to the uh, celebrations. And Mary speaking to Jesus about this impending cultural calamity and disaster, there's almost an accusatory uh, remark in it as to what have you brought, Jesus? What have you and the disciples brought to the party? Now, at the same time, Mary knew that he was Israel's Messiah, and she knew that he was caring, that he was compassionate, that he was sensitive, and she was looking to him to do something to avert what would be a shameful failure. Now, Jesus, up to this point, had performed no miracles. So, it's unlikely that she was thinking that he was going to do what he was about to do. And Jesus' response to his mother seems kind of disrespectful to us, the way it's expressed in our English Bibles. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this word that's translated here as woman is sometimes translated as, 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 as wife. We might translate it as uh, lady, something like, like that. It's interesting, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he speaks from the cross. And he says there, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple which he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So it's not as stark as it comes across there in our English Bibles. He could have addressed her as mother, but he chose woman with a good reason. You see, up to this time in Jesus' life, his relationship to his mother was no doubt a very close one, especially as we think that Joseph had died, and Jesus being the oldest son would have shown great care for her and his siblings. But a change had taken place, and Jesus had begun his ministry of presenting himself as Israel's Messiah and King. And Mary needed to understand something. He had spoken to her as a 12-year-old as a when they were frantically searching for him in the temple there in Jerusalem. And she said, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Their relationship of necessity had to change as he begins to order his life according to the divine timetable to move from the domestic to God's divine uh, program. He's very conscious of his need to live in obedience uh, to his father. He's lived in obedience and respect to his mother, but now he has to give that up. 
and give his obedience to his heavenly Father. His public ministry had begun, and she must step back from presuming upon him. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus was always conscious of the future hour, that time where he knew that he would die on the cross, where there he would bear our sins, and he would be submitted to the punishment that those sins deserved, that he would die in our place. Then he would rise again, conqueror of sin and death. And Jesus would eventually ascend back to heaven, his mission accomplished as far as providing the way whereby men and women, boys and girls, could be brought back into a relationship with himself. I wonder this morning, have you a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your personal Savior? Has there been a day in your life when you said, Lord Jesus, yes, I'm a sinner. I need that forgiveness that comes only through you. Do you have that relationship that you can call him, my Lord, my Savior? I trust you can. You see, Jesus is not refusing to help in what was not only an embarrassing situation, but would bring great shame on the family. This was not the time for him to reveal himself as Israel's Messiah. But he was willing to demonstrate Messiah's power by changing water into wine. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. These are Mary's last words recorded for us in the scriptures. She doesn't nag him. She doesn't try to get her way. She knows that he's caring and compassionate and, and considerate and capable. And her submission to him demonstrates her faith towards him and allows him to deal with the problem as he deems appropriate. She initially approached him as mother, but now she approaches him as her Lord. And we all need to learn that if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to live lives that are, are pleasing to God, then we too must obey and do whatever he tells you. You see, it's as we daily read God's word that he, he speaks to us, that he instructs us, that is, in effect, as we open God's word, we, we open God's mouth to allow him to speak to us and to speak into our lives. It's through his word that we hear him speaking to us. You see, God's will for our lives is not difficult to discover, but it is only when we obey him that we experience the reality of God and see him change water into wine to take the ordinary and mundane and transform it into the remarkable and surprising and with eternal consequences. So we have John's revelation of the man Jesus. And then in verses 6 to 10 here, we have this miracle of turning water into wine. The servants 
uh, told to draw water from the well and fill six stone water jars. These jars were used for storing water that was used in their purification ceremonies. They would wash themselves after they came back from places that they would uh, regard as unclean, a cemetery, uh, the marketplace, or if they'd been in contact with, uh, with Gentiles. These uh, uh, water jars here held between 15 to 20 gallons together, somewhere between 90 and 120 gallons. That would be about 2,400 servings uh, of wine. And it says there that they filled them to the brim. And then they are told to draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. The head waiter was surprised. He drinks this wine and he, he, he remarks, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. You see, the custom was to start with the, with the, the good wine and as people had, had drank some of it and began to feel perhaps a little, you know, inebriated, what, what, whatever, then they would bring out the, uh, uh, the bad stuff. The fact that Jesus created something that people could abuse is not surprising. <coughs> Humans seem to have a propensity for misusing and abusing God's good gift. Happily, that hasn't deterred God from giving uh, us uh, good things, even though we have abused them. Um, wine is an alcohol. It's something that we need to realize can be dangerous. I can think of colleagues in our work who actually exercised too much freedom in this area and disqualified themselves from ministry. I'm not you know, saying don't drink anything, but I'm saying one needs to be extremely careful. I've seen good men who have misused God's good gifts. And, and, and some have justified you know, drinking on, on the basis of, of Jesus turning water into wine. Warren Wiersbe tells the story of uh, somebody who said to him, well, you know, why shouldn't I drink? Usually people say this as a, uh, a justification of excessive drinking. He said, why, 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 why shouldn't I? Jesus turned water into wine. And Wiersbe said to him, if you use Jesus as your example for drinking, why don't you follow his example in everything else? And then he read this to him from Luke 22, verse 18. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So you can see there that Jesus is teetotal at the moment. Now, the servants and the disciples and Mary were the only ones to witness this, the first of his miracles. The first miracle that John records for us is only observed by a few people there, whereas when he raises Lazarus, the final of his great miracles that he did there, there was huge crowds there who saw it, and it was at that time that they decided that they would put him to death. 
This miracle demonstrates his deity as creator. His action of turning water into wine transcends natural laws in a supernatural way. You see, naturally, a vine turns water into wine. It is done through a process of the rootstock of taking water into it and into the branches. And as the leaves are formed and the sun shines, a flower, and then the grapes are formed. And then the, the grapes are crushed and the juice over a period of time uh, ferments and becomes wine. But Jesus dispenses with the vine. He dispenses with the soil, the sunshine, the rain. He dispenses with the seasons. And what he as creator had created the vine to do was set aside. The process was too slow. And he turned water into wine instantaneously. He willed water into wine. A poet put it this way, the simple creature touched by grace divine, owned its creator, and blushed into wine. But there is more to this miracle than providing for the needs of the wedding guests and saving the groom from embarrassment and shame. John refers to this as the first of Jesus' signs. He refers to this miracle as a sign. And verse 11 says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are six different Greek words used in the New Testament that are used when speaking of a miracle. But John uses this word sign of each of the seven miracles that he chooses to record for us. He uses the, the word 17 times in his gospel. And the NIV uh, translates it as miraculous sign. And this word sign is used to describe a miracle with meaning. It implies that the miracle is an indication of some power behind it to which the miracle is secondary in importance. Often, John, as you'll see as you go through your studies there, records a miracle of Jesus, and then he follows it with a sermon, an explanation. The feeding of the 5,000 is followed by Jesus speaking of himself as being the, the, the bread of, uh, of life. Here, there is no sermon recorded following the miraculous sign. But this miracle is highly symbolic. In the Old Testament, wine is a, a symbol of joy. In Psalm 104, verse 15, we read, wine to gladden the heart. And then in Judges 9, 13, we read, shall I leave my wine that cheers good men? It is significant here that what Jesus did in providing wine the Old Testament prophet said that Jehovah would do himself, that he would provide wine for his people. In Joel 2, verse 19, we read, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, 
and oil, and you will be satisfied. Thus, the sign also signifies that Jesus was God. There was no longer any true joy in the religious life of the Jewish nation. It was a religion of, of ritual, of, of rites and ceremony. Their spiritual life no longer had any flavor. It, there was no taste. There was no joy to it. They, they, they went about their religious observances in, in an attempt to establish their own righteousness before God. But Jesus, he was bringing in a new order to the nation that true joy could only be found in him alone by trusting in him as their Messiah and Savior. MacDonald, in his commentary, puts it this way, the water of Jewish ritual and ceremony could be turned into the wine of joyful reality in Christ. And that is the experience of those who cease from their own efforts to establish themselves as righteous before God and to accept the righteousness that comes from Jesus alone through his death in dying and paying for our sins there. The second highly symbolic truth we can learn from this miracle is that the presence of Jesus led to the best wine coming last. We live in a world where everything that is supposedly best is offered up front. The attractions, the toys of life, those things that are presented to us to make those choices and take those steps that make life easier, to, to get every creature comfort and possession, to make life more entertaining, to get and hold on to as much as possible to make life more enriching, to invest for our future, to make life more enduring. But you know the enticements and the lures of this world's only lead to emptiness and disillusionment. It's all vanity, as the preacher declared. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? But the person who trusts Christ and invests his life in learning and loving and living for Jesus experiences ever increasing joys. And the end of life is going to bring unutterable joys and pleasures in heaven. To hear his voice, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The good wine has been kept until now. And for us who trust in Christ, the best is still to come. For all who trusted in Jesus, the promise of eternity with them, joys beyond our wildest imagination. The outcome of this first of his signs is that he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That faith was strengthened. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. 
We want to thank you for this revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who supernaturally turns water into wine, the one who, when he comes into our life, supernaturally changes our lives and brings eternity into our hearts. Lord, we thank you this morning for the reminder of the wonder of who he is. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us this morning would embrace him uh, into our hearts to live for him, to love him, to be led by him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.